With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on this week's show, the new company of gaming legends dedicated to making Atari games. A modern TV that makes retro games look good. And we talked to Jungle Music superstar Pete Cannon about producing music on his Amiga. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're a fan of the Sega Master System, check out Master System, a visual compendium covering 200 of the best games on the platform across 224 pages. You can check that out and lots more on their website right now at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 266, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show where we take a bit of time out. We reminisce about classic video games, classic consoles, really the systems and the games and the companies that help to shape our life. And each week on the show, we take you behind the scenes, bring you up to date with what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and bring you a special guest as well. Now, I'm actually feeling quite relaxed this week. Just had a week off and actually finally got to play some games that I got for Christmas, um, I think in 2019. I was about to say when you said going Christmas, I was about to jump in and I was like, what, like 2019? Because <laughs> I know what you're like. What did you play? Uh, well, it's actually a couple of, mo- well, I say modern games, you know, Red Dead Redemption 2, finally um, unpacked that. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't that been in the cellophane for literally two years? Yep, it has, um, which is great. Because it's weird, you know, people talk to us about doing this. And I often get people like saying, oh, you must play so many video games. I'm like, well, no, we spend all our time talking about it. I don't actually get to play many of them all, to be honest. You see, I've been really lucky because since having my daughter, we've got into such a routine of she goes to bed at seven. We then have our dinner and watch a bit of TV and stuff. And then when my wife goes to bed at like 10, I stay up for like another hour or two. And I've literally just been rinsing games. I have. I've been, you know, playing Sonic Mania. I've been playing, uh, I think it's called Cyber Shadow, which is that new retro ninja game. Uh, I've been playing Dead Rising and stuff like that. So I'm just living it up playing games. (laughs) You guys are just busy editing shows and stuff. God. (laughs) Joe living his best life. I am, I am. Well, uh, this week we have got an amazing guest, kind of following up an episode that we did that was really popular um, a couple of months ago now, actually, with that DJ Aphrodite, who, of course, is a jungle producer um, who used to make music on the Amiga back in the early 90s. And we did a great episode with him, kind of talking about the, the the tracks that he produced back in the day, but also kind of referencing the modern scene that's going on right now. And since then, we had so many requests. Why don't you talk to Pete Cannon, guys? This guy's amazing. Yeah, uh, we've got Pete Cannon on, and this is an absolutely wicked episode. So um, I even did a feature on Aphrodite and Pete Cannon in Amiga Addict. So it kind of, kind of works in with that. And, you know, Pete's amazing because... He's he's making tunes with Amigas, and it's got big press attention. He was in Sound on Sound magazine recently, and some of the tunes he's making are epic, and he actually gets them made onto vinyl. So, you know, they're yep. coming directly off the Amiga onto vinyl, and they sound awesome. He's got a huge setup. We talk all about that. We talk about the techniques that he uses, why he uses Amigas, and 
you know, he's kind of repurposing something that was originally used for gaming and turning it into this instrument and, you know, putting it in a modern context. And he puts these videos out on YouTube, and I don't know if you've seen them, but his setup's crazy. And he'll drop some jungle tunes and, you know, people react and they're like, what is this? Oh, my God. And I think it's great that we do episodes not only kind of talking about what people did 20, 30 years ago, but also people that are doing new things with classic machines like Pete. Yeah, so I just absolutely love it. You know, Pete's music's kind of really good as well. It's not like he's creating rubbish. Um, Aphex Twin actually played one of his tracks to thousands of people live. And hopefully when this is all over, Pete will be out there with his Amigas rocking it. I think we're all ready for a party. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So uh, Pete Cannon is going to be coming up as our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, obviously, this is going to be a bit of a uh, music-themed episode. While we're on that subject, actually, um, there is a great place quite near us here in the East Midlands in England called the Retro Computer Museum. Now, we often make it along to most of their events that they do, at least before, you know, COVID closed it down about a year ago. Um, But obviously, it's been hard for any of these kind of venues across the world and um, not being able to have people in and obviously things continue like bills and rent and that kind of thing. And the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester, I've actually managed to get a few music legends from the video game industry together to make a new album that is raising money to keep the Retro Computer Museum open. Yeah, obviously at the moment they can't have people in the museum, so they're not able to get an income. And yeah. this place is absolutely fantastic. Like, uh, we went down there and I showed Dan and he, his mind was blown. They had um, virtuality, you know, the virtual reality machines that were running Amiga. They had a whole library section. They've just got loads of machines that you can play on. And, like, the vibe of that place is just so friendly when when you can actually make it down there. So we'd love to see them kind of keep going and uh, help support them. Now, this track list is absolutely mind-blowing so they've got like jerome tell alistair brimble cold storage who did the uh, wipeout soundtrack um eight bit weapon rob hubbard you know <laughs> absolute legend chris abbott as well uh mike clark this is like a list of all the amazing video game musicians on two cds basically so we recommend this it's called blank canvas and um the address is blank canvas charity UK. Yeah, and that's Mike Clark, of course, famous for doing the, the Retro Hour theme. Oh, yeah. And a bit of Psygnosis as well. But, yeah, you know, it's, it's not, not going to be an album just with the Retro Hour theme. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I'd buy that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> it is amazing. I mean, obviously, venues like this need our support to stay open when everything gets back to normal. And, you know, I know Retro Computer Museum has had a lot of donations from fans, but additional funding is still needed, you know, as we get through these final few months and hopefully they can get open again in the summer. So um, definitely worthwhile. Please do support that. And, of course, we'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, it's been a busy week for retro gaming news. Now, let's uh, since we're going to be talking about the Amiga very soon, let's talk about a first-person shooter on the Amiga. This was a game called Citadel. Have you ever played this one? Um, no, I've not actually played this one. I, I've seen lots of footage of it because um, it came out in the time, like, 1995, whereas it was like the kind of Doom Wars, you know. Amiga was trying to get first-person shooters and it was trying to beat Doom, stay up with the competition. And uh, there's a really interesting video on this. Uh, it's called uh, Doomed and it's by Ahoy. And he actually looks at all the 
different kind of periods of time. This this came out of Poland, and uh, there was another title called Nemak at the time, which came out of Germany. And it looks like the original developers have kind of updated this and uh, got it working a lot better. Yeah, so from what I can see, I mean, I've never played this either, but it does look like a very nice Doom clone. But yeah, the original, you know, the original developers have gone back and essentially they've got it running a lot faster. You know, it ran quite well in the first place by the looks of it, but they've got it running a lot faster. They've got it running from HD. It says, I'm not too sure what that means because of, I'm not an Amiga uh, The hard then, disk. Oh, from hard disk. <laughs> I was going to say, like, they've got it in HD on an Amiga. Like, they've got it running from hard disk then. Okay, cool. And then they've just fixed, generally fixed a few bugs in there. But the main thing is they've got it running a lot faster. And, you know, the, they've got the uh, the FPS up on, on there as well. But it does look really nice. And it's interesting that they've gone back, you know, like 25 years later. I'm assuming they're probably going to dump it somewhere for everybody to play as well, <laughs> so everybody can download it and play it. But yeah, it looks really cool. It looks interesting because I'm looking at the video at the moment, and like some of the enemies are like um, trolls in kind of underpants. <laughs> the other ones look a bit like you know the Little Shop of Horrors. Oh yeah, 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 and they're all coming from multiple directions, and you've got the uh, Polish eagle everywhere as well, and uh, <laughs> it, it's got you know opening doors. Uh, all the levels uh, are kind of with floor and ceiling, which was a a really big feature back then to actually yeah. have floor and ceiling. You know, uh, some games you had to take them out to speed them up. I remember Gloom was one where you could remove the uh, floor and ceiling, and Gloom was like kind of Amiga's attempt at Doom. Uh, it was quite I, a good game, though. I, I love that. So rather than like reducing the graphics or anything like that, they just you know have an option to take the ceiling out <laughs> yeah. so the game runs better. Oh god, I miss the Amiga. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is because you know the Amiga was designed a bit like you know the the Mega Drive. It was a sprite based machine, and then obviously yeah. all these kind of three D games came along. And yeah, the developers tried to do three D games by doing tricks that the hardware was never designed to do in the first place. Um, and I remember, you know, even today when you look on like Amiga forums and stuff, there was a big thread on the Commodore Amiga Facebook group the other week, some guy saying, you know, if you run Doom on your Amiga, because it did get ported to it eventually, you know, you're cheating the system, you're not a real Amiga fan. Because a lot of people kind of blame Doom for being like that kind of final nail in the coffin for when everyone yeah. kind of moved over to the PC and left their Amigas behind, you know, because it was such a big game, people were desperate to play it. Uh, but there are actually, I mean, there was a bunch of games that came out on the Amiga around that time. Like Ravi mentioned, there was Gloom. Uh, I remember a game called Fears. That uh, I used to Trapped enjoy playing was another one. I used to like Trapped. Yeah. Um, and obviously the Alien Breed 3D games that, <laughs> you know, I think we've talked about before on the show, that were actually, you know, so demanding, I don't think there was actually an Amiga on the planet that could play them. Well, you also have to rate. play these in a, a small windows as well. That was yeah. always the kind of thing. It's never a, a full screen experience. But um, it's amazing to see that they're updating it like 26 years later uh, than the actual release. And uh, I remember that point about, you know, kind of doom killing the Amiga. I remember when I interviewed John Romero and I mentioned that to him and he went, I killed the Amiga. <laughs> <laughs> then did you smack him on the head? <laughs> with, with a rolled up copy of Amiga Addict. Get out. <laughs> yeah, but I, mean, I always think that kind of early first person shooter era was really interesting because obviously those were games that were really pushing the hardware on all platforms. You know, around that time when, I remember when Quake came out, and suddenly all my mates that were into PC gaming, we've got to buy a new graphics card. And, you know, you'd spend like thousands on your machine to upgrade it, you know, get the CPU replaced to a faster one just to play these games, which today I think it, the process seems a little bit more 
gradual, doesn't it, than those kind of massive jumps that we had back then. Yeah, and also, like, these are worlds that, you know, kind of haven't been explored. Maybe they passed a lot of other gamers by or they passed a yeah. lot of other users by and, uh, you know, it's really nice to see it patched and maybe more people will play it and we'll see more videos of people streaming it. And uh, I remember when I went back to Doom and played the original Doom uh, at the original speed and I felt so sick. So yeah. <laughs> it's good to actually have a, a speed upgrade when you're playing nowadays. You know, it's funny because I did a, a video running Windows 98 on the Raspberry Pi on my YouTube channel. Um, and I showed the, you know, Doom 95, the version that got put into Windows. Yeah. And it played on there. I think it was probably around 15 frames a second. Yeah, that was about, uh, yeah, about 14 yeah. or 15, yeah. But so many comments were people like saying, oh, you know, it used to run faster than that back in the day. That's unacceptable. I'm like, it didn't. You try to play Doom on a 486 or an early Pentium, that is probably what you got around that kind of speed. Yeah, try and do so, a LAN party nowadays and you'll all be puking in buckets <laughs> yeah that crt flicker as well <laughs> so uh yeah i mean it's always amazing when especially something as kind of niche as this you know a late amiga game when it kind of went through that era when everyone was trying to do doom on the amiga the fact that this team of developers 25 years later have gone back and actually found a way to improve the, the original game and i think it's cool that as well today we can emulate amigas using stuff like uae so it opens it up to a lot more people who maybe never experienced that kind of late era of games on the platform so yeah very cool i think they have released a version that you can download and play right now actually so i'll link that up and of course everything else we talk about in our show notes at the retrohour.com now, speaking of people that have kind of returned to their roots, this is a really cool story. Now, this is a new company called Audacity Games, and it's by a crew of ex-Activision legends, um, one of which we've actually had on the podcast in the past. We did an episode with uh, David Crane, Activision legend. Um, God, that was probably in the early days of this podcast. I've got a feeling it was in our first year. But now he's got together with uh, Gary Kitchen as well, and they're now working on a new company dedicated to developing Atari 2600 games. Do you think we'll see these on the VCS? <laughs> what, on the new one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're jumping on that bandwagon. <laughs> well, you can run games on Windows on the VCS. So um, judging by from what I've seen of their announcement, um, apparently they've had a lot of demand off fans saying, look, you know, you guys are best known for your work in that era. Why don't you make some new games? You know, retro is such a big thing right now. Um, they are saying, though, you won't actually need an original Atari 2600 to play their games. They're going to offer these as, like, downloadable titles that are contained within a, an, an emulation wrapper, so you can play yeah. them on a modern PC. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, to see a company appear in 2021 that's, like, dedicated to 2600 games. Too many 20s there. Do you, do you <laughs> think these will be, like, modern, you know, do we know if they're going to be, like, proper retro graphics and stuff or they're going to be like modern versions of like games they worked on in the past do we know or well they are going to run on original 2600 hardware as well oh the sounds of it so they are going to be limited to that you know the limitations of the machine um but the saying here in the press release i mean the fact that you know these guys have got kind of 40 years experience Mm. of working on the hardware i imagine what they can do between them it's probably going to push the platform to its limits, I imagine. Yeah, all the hardware tricks that have been learned over those times, they'll be able to implement. Like um, Halo 2600 was a really interesting I was literally title. just thinking about yeah. Halo 2600. But yeah, no, they, they, this could be cool, because I mean, they worked on like Ghostbusters, Donkey Kong. A Pitfall uh, as well, yeah. Pitfall, yeah, stuff mm. like that. So, you know, they're 
you know, I mean, I'm not big on the Atari 2600, but they're all they're all games I've heard of, and you know, are, are renowned for being like the good 2600 games. So I, yeah, I, could, I must say though, as soon as I heard this, I was like, oh, the, is the sound program Audacity doing uh, video games? <laughs> yeah, because there is an, an audio editor called Audacity as well, isn't there? Yeah. Um, but at the moment, I mean, there is they've got a little basic website which is um, audacitygames.com, and there is a little like kind of 10 seconds video on there that just shows that curtains opening and then like a 3d render of an atari 2600 cartridge so i mean they haven't really given away too much of what they're going to be working on but um i think it is very positive and i mean we talk to so many people on this show having developers on all the time and we often say to them would you ever go back and kind of do you know retro games again a lot of them are like i'd really like to do that actually you know when you plant the idea in the head so it is cool to see that a group of people are so famed for doing these massive titles on you know, platforms like the Atari 2600 mm. are going back to roots and actually showing a bit of love to that platform once again. It obviously proves they think there's a, a commercial angle there, I guess, yeah, if, you know, if they're going to be selling if, these. If they're doing carts as well, obviously mm. there's got to be factories to produce these and then maybe that will enable more people to kind of enter the 2600 business and uh, they must be releasing boxed versions and manuals and all of that kind of stuff. So it could be really interesting, you know, uh, get some more people on the team and actually create a little industry yeah i mean especially if they're bringing out physical as well because i mean when you go for products that hardcore collectors want i mean it's all well and good putting something up there that you can download and play in an emulator but you know the real fans want that full experience so as we know you know getting a video game back then was more than just playing it it was the box it was the artwork it was a physical media as well so it is important i think that they are doing that too i think to kind of give it that full you know like a, a retro company kind of feel yeah an atari age at the moment they're really huge and uh, i know they've mm. released some games as well so uh, there's a huge community uh, based around this as well which really interesting yeah let's get a few more old school developers back making retro games again so looking forward to see what Synosis, these guys come, come on <laughs> now what about a game that was made back in the day uh, that never got released that has finally been found. Now, we actually did um, an episode all about unreleased games with Frank Gaskin recently, didn't we? Um, that new book that he's got out with our friends at Bit My Books, actually, um, the games that weren't. And this was a game called um, Pub Jumper Mario <laughs> that was yeah. made back in 1983. Yeah, this looks hilarious. Like, I, I've just been watching this and I've been like, I miss the pub so much. Like, so this game's working on me right now. <laughs> So yeah, um, this is a you know an unofficial Mario game for the C64 that came out in well it didn't come out but was made in 1983 by uh, a young boy who was only 14 at the time called Jeremy. Now we've not got his surname on the article I'm reading, but he actually made he made Mario's Brewery and Firefighter Mario, which were both you know like um, preserved digitally in 2015. Um, and now we've now got Mario Pub Jumper, or Pub Jumper Mario, sorry, which is essentially a clone of the Popeye game for the C64. Uh, and rather than, you know, running around as Popeye fighting Bluto, you're fighting a pub bouncer and you're running around <laughs> collecting pints of beer and drinking them, um, which just sounds like a mad night out on, you know, when lockdown ends really to me. Um, but yeah, um, apparently, essentially he made this on the C64 in like raw in machine code. Um, from what I understand, he did it like in a local shop. Like he used to go into the local shop and do it on their C64. Oh, wow. And then they had it set up for people to come and play it. And they just never put it on a cartridge or capitalized on it or anything like that. And somehow they've got a hold of the original game. So I'm assuming the shop or he still had this original C64. 
He and could, now he's put it on, put it online for his all to play. He never could have released this as well. Like Guiana oh, Sisters God, no. got taken yeah. down, but Nintendo yeah. would have absolutely the, lost the, it. <laughs> the fact that on the title screen and the artwork for the game is so blatantly Mario drinking a pint with Bluto, like, with Bluto, with Bluto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's just brilliant. But yeah, honestly, this, it makes me laugh that this has just made me nostalgic for going to the pub. <laughs> That first night out, Joe, you're going to be there in the bar, dressed as Mario. <laughs> dressed as Mario, <laughs> running around, drinking pints, jumping over bounces that look like blue toe. <laughs> but you know what I'm, I'm really impressed with is, you know, like you said, he was 14 years old when he made yeah. this. The graphics are actually really good. Yeah. Especially you think how hard it was to do graphics like that in those early days of the C64. Yeah, honestly, you can, you can tell what's going on. You can tell it's bottles of beer and pints and stuff like that. And sometimes on those games, you've really got to use your imagination, haven't you? But... Yeah, no, it's, it, it is a shame that it didn't come out and that we've got a nice cease and desist story, you know, to talk about. I say nice, but yeah, you know what Nintendo are like. But, but also it's a bit, it's a bit weird. Like he's dodging the booze and, and the beer, like getting chucked at him. So has he had too much? Oh, I don't know. Because in some, in, if you flick through the video in some of them, he's collecting it. So I'm guessing it's different per... Ah, yeah, different items. Per level, yeah. like what you have to do and stuff like that. But yeah, he is dodging them on some levels. So I'm guessing it's what you've got to do on that level. Depends what beer's been thrown at you, I guess. You know, if it's like a carling, you'd probably avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, the shade. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, if you want to download that, grab it while you can. Like we said, Nintendo, uh, we'll put it in our show notes. Now, let's talk about, um, obviously, RetroArch, very well known for being um, a very popular emulation front end uh, that we load all our emulators in. I've got Raspberry Pis, you know, that are loaded with RetroArch setups. And now the team is developing a cartridge adapter. Yeah, this looks pretty cool i'm gonna try and simplify it for my own sake more than anything because this wasn't what i thought it was initially until i read when i first saw it i thought oh retro arch console that would be yeah i i initially thought this was a cartridge reader that you just you know plug into your pc and then you kind of like you can play your n64 games like on your pc kind of thing but it's not quite that it is something that's been done before but hasn't been around for a while and these are really expensive to buy you know, when they pop up pop up on eBay and stuff like that. But essentially, it's a cartridge adapter to rip the actual games from the actual, you know, the actual ROMs from the games onto your computer, um, which I believe is legal. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, if you own the game, yeah. Yeah, if you own the game, you can actually do that. So it is for, you know, getting your ROMs onto your computer and stuff like that. So at the moment, it's just a prototype. Um, and then the images they've released, they've got, they're doing it on Quake 2, which is pretty cool. But they are going to be releasing this commercially, um you know for people to buy and stuff like that and the idea is you know they're trying to you know say you know these haven't been around for a while there's nobody selling them at the moment we want to put this out to the community so people can start ripping roms again um you know and then obviously they'll probably dump them online and stuff for people to play but they're also going to release all the like you know how to make it yourself as well apparently like so other people can make them oh that's cool like the the main thing is you know nintendo obviously (laughs) are taking yeah. down all the ROMs at the moment. So actually you say that they go online, but it's really hard to oh, get hold okay. of them at the moment. You know, there's a lot of like hidden places where you can get them, but um, you know, there's nothing much in the, in the public space at the moment. Um, mm. So this, this actually is quite useful and it looks like it's got a USB-C cable as well. So yes. I can yeah, imagine it's USB-C, yeah. really fast when you're ripping it yeah. or just transferring it across. Yeah. Well, what they've said is, um, you know, they're purposely making the models simple enough for people to replicate the model as well. You know, so the idea is it's not so much that like by the sounds of things that they're, you know, oh, here's this new product we want to make money off. They're trying to make retro gaming better. 
you know they're trying to make it more accessible for people and stuff so maybe it is like you say it's where nintendo are taking stuff down they're kind of trying to fight that a little bit maybe well, um, well there's an n64 uh developers cart on ebay at the moment and, yeah and yeah. uh really interestingly it went up to some crazy amount of money i think at last last time i checked it it was um i think 50 50 thousand pounds um, yeah. so maybe you wow. can you can rip that <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you know what that's, that. pe- people probably will do you know what i mean they probably will do stuff like that with it. i'm sure the development car i forget what game that's for i remember you showing me i'm sure it will probably get dumped online and you know the idea is obviously you would use carts like this and stuff so far they've only done the n64 one um, and obviously it's not out yet hopefully they're saying hopefully it'll be out this year but we can likely expect, you know, them to support other cartridge games as well. So I'm sure we'll see it for the Super Nintendo and the Mega Drive and stuff as well, which is pretty cool. That was the first thing I thought when I saw this. It, it is going to be a godsend, I think, for people that managed to get hold of games that haven't been dumped already, yes. whether yeah. it's prototype versions or, you know, there are games out there that were just produced in limited quantities and people might have maybe one in their collection that they want to get out there. But obviously yeah. kind of ripping a cartridge yourself on the original hardware is very difficult for most people. Yeah, I wouldn't have a clue where to start with something like that. Whereas if I had this project, like this this product, I'm pretty sure it, by the looks of things, the idea is it's just kind of a plug in and go kind of thing. What what are the, like, oh, wicked? What are the chances that someone's gonna you know put a Raspberry Pi underneath this with RetroArch on it and then kind of build a little like, unit yeah. and just have it so it's plug and play and yeah, yeah. more than likely, I'd say that'd I'd be say awesome. Definitely. Because that's what I thought it was going to be when I first kind of read the article. And maybe, you know, they can't do that for legal reasons. So, you know, they're kind of putting it out there. And I, like you say, people probably will do that. And, and it, I guess in theory, if it's just like reading the car, all you probably need to change would be the um, the pin header or whatever and uh, change it to a different size. And then yeah, cause it's, maybe yeah. just... Because it's just taking the data off it, right? So mm. you could have a SNES one or if if you're hacking or adapting. Like interchangeable, like when the cartridge's not in it, you literally just take the pin heads out and then put another one in, you, you're saying. Yeah, maybe maybe they were, yeah. might release something like that in the future. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be really easy to do. I, I, well, I'm not saying it'd be really easy to do. It'd be really easy to work. It would be really easy to, like, as a consumer to do. do you, you make know it, Joe. I mean? You no, make I it, can't make it. it. <laughs> Give him a soldering iron. I'm not saying that's easy to make. I'm saying it's easy to use as a consumer if they made something like that. Yeah. <laughs> just to get that straight. And, and it is a legal way to play these games you know that's how a lot of everdrives work really isn't it you just put the um the roms and it reads kind of dumps the, the rom into the cartridge's ram and then you play it so i mean it is just uh you know you could actually imagine run emulation using something like this um and like you said i mean the fact that they're just little dongles that kind of sit on the end of a usb connector it would be easy enough to i imagine <laughs> not that i can make it either um put interchangeable units on there that you could then have for all your console collection like you said it's just putting a different pin out on the uh on the header i imagine so um very cool though, i think yeah like you said joe i i wouldn't have known if i had a cartridge i wouldn't have known how to get this dumped no with any current solution so um yeah very cool i think any way that we can kind of get a really solid archive of retro games and kind of get as much archived as possible while we can, I think is a really important thing. Now, obviously, one thing that we spend a lot of time looking at when we're playing retro video games is the display. And that's always been a bit of a headache. I mean, you know, I've had arguments with people on forums before. Um, and then I've, I've had a few people kind of jibe me for this, that, that I've got uh, several CRT monitors in my room. I think uh, looking around, I've got about five in this room oh, now. Wow. 
<laughs> maybe slightly addicted to uh, using them on my old machine. Don't, don't wear I went a football period. shirt in there. <laughs> sort of the yeah. static. <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, because I, I went through a stage when I got back into retro of trying so many different kind of displays, modern displays, to get my systems looking good. You know, hooking my um, Amiga 1200 up to um, an LCD TV, a plasma TV, a computer monitor with an adapter. None of them ever looked right. The pixels always looked really jaggy and blocky. And, you know, the blacks were never true black. They're always like this kind of light gray kind of color. And it's always been a bone of contention for me that, you know, if I haven't got a CRT display, when I go around people's houses, I've got retro setups and they're plugging it into a modern telly. I'm kind of like, you've gone 90% of the way getting the original hardware, but you haven't gone that extra mile to get the thing that you're looking at all day to be more authentic. But now it turns out that what you could actually do is get a modern display that actually makes retro games look almost as good as a CRT. Yeah, this is uh, called the LGCX, and it's basically an OLED display but it has these kind of modes in there. And, and the, you're right about the black level because OLED, black looks absolutely amazing on there. You know, sometimes I've gone around my mate's house with an OLED TV. They're quite expensive. And um, I've watched stuff on it. I'm like, I'll turn the brightness up a bit because it is so, so black in certain sections. Um, but this monitor actually has like filters on it um, that are CRT filters. So you can have the like, scanline effects going across it and that's like absolutely ideal for gaming because crts obviously haven't been made for well, over a decade now and this is something we talked about ravi and i in our interview with um the video game heritage society that we'll actually put on our website if you want to check that out it, it is live now we had a big chat on there about you know how you couldn't give away crts a decade ago but now if you try and get hold of like you know sony pvm for example they're fetching a fortune now on sites like eBay. Uh, and I always wonder whether a company will stop making maybe a limited run of CRTs for retro gamers again at some point. I've got a feeling someone may do that. But at the moment, you know, as these displays get older and they become less reliable, there isn't really a good replacement for them for retro games at the moment. But I mean, I've had a lot of people talking about OLED. Um, and obviously, I think, you know, it is becoming more affordable now. I was reading here that um, LG have released their first OLED computer monitor okay. um, back in January this year. So, you know, the technology is kind of coming in that price range where it is going to be affordable for consumers. Um, and I've heard great things about the black levels and the fact that, you know, they don't look quite as pixelated with these filters on. So I did try, I, I always found plasma was a bit better than LCD for retro systems. Yeah, I, I think that there's the two complaints and the two complaints are like the black levels aren't black enough and the light guns don't work. And now the Sindon light guns come out where you can actually use it on modern TVs and they're getting CRT filters. So it's interesting to see these kind of technology developments coming out and uh, enabling us to use like all the old school stuff on uh, new systems. You know, it's not going to be perfect like the CRT is, but um, it's, it's called Phosphor 2X, which is the... Uh, kind of CRT style effect that they've added into this LG one. And I think LG are the only people that actually make OLEDs. Um, I know, Joe, you mainly play on a flat screen, but I know you've actually been thinking recently, and your wife might be in the vicinity, <laughs> but you know, you've been eyeing up CRTs. Yeah, I, I really, really want like a nice, just like 14 inch CRT. But like you say, you couldn't give them away 10, 15 years ago. And now you go on Facebook Marketplace and people just want so much money for them. 
And the thing is, it's not like they're being outrageous, like, oh, I want 50 quid for this. or You know, that is genuinely how much they're going for. And, you know, I do, I want that retro feel again. And I do want to play all my Litecoin games because I've got li- literally like, you know, all the time crisis games and House of the Dead and everything. So I do really want to play them again. But obviously you can't do that on the OLED. But I don't know what she'd be more upset about if I bought an o- uh, OLED screen uh, TV or if I bought a CRT TV. <laughs> I don't know which she'd be more upset about. Probably the OLED one. I think I think maybe in the, Get both, Tester. Get maybe in the future, if, if, if there's a price drop... Um, with OLED and stuff, you know, this could be really cool. And, and you know, you can have that nice, nice TV in your house where you can do 4K, but then also hook up your uh, 16-bit games. <laughs> you get this £4,000 TV. What are you playing on that, Alex kid? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is one thing you're going to have to think of, though, because, I mean, I imagine these haven't got, like, SCART connectors and things. You're going to have to go via the, um, you know, the SCART to HDMI yeah. adapter route, and then that's more expense. I mean... There are cheap ones you can get off eBay, but then they add latency. So you've got to get, like, you know, a decent one. Like, I think you had, like, a Frame Meister at one stage, didn't you, Ravid? And if you still got that? Yeah, yeah. But I know that was, like, a, a solution, but they're, they're not cheap. So you're going to have to factor I mean, that in with You the- could put scan lines into that, and, like, there was yeah. there was a set of filters, but it's kind of nice to have it in the TV, because even if you don't have one of these upscalers, you could uh, just apply it on anything. You could even put it, you know, like, VHS-style. Um, uh, watching some old VHS rips or, or YouTube videos. And obviously we've had OLED in phones for a couple of years now, and um, you'll know that obviously, that I think the differences between like an LCD and an OLED screen is, you know, it, it's a brightness as well. Mm-hmm. You can kind of get that really bright look that you used to get on CRTs. So um, it does kind of bring it one step closer. I would love it though. I mean, I mean, I've seen people talking about this on forums and stuff as well. If someone set like a Kickstarter up and maybe could find a factory somewhere and just churn out a few thousand beautiful CRTs that we could all afford. Oh, that'd would be, be amazing. Yeah. I can't imagine the rate cheap to ship around the world, though. So no, that's, that's, that's another problem. <laughs> that's another Especially problem. Especially when they're all going yeah. to the PO box for Ravi to pick up. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, when CRTs do get shipped on eBay and stuff, the amount of ones that I've seen that have been smashed in the post and, and, and damaged, and, you know, people are spending a lot of money on these and stuff, so it might make sense to get a, a modern TV, even though you are faking it a bit. But, you know... Yeah, I've seen, like, PVMs destroyed. I've seen, uh, you know, these people don't handle them very well when they're getting chipped. No, and it's heartbreaking when... um, I've seen it on forums and stuff and Facebook groups as well. And that heartache of opening the box and then seeing this thing you've been excited for that's been shipping to you for, like, the last two weeks. And, yeah, it's all smashed to bits inside. And, yeah, getting replacement cases and all that kind of thing for a lot of those screens... Not the easiest thing in the world to do. So, um, yeah, it would be great if we've got a new one of those. So if anyone's thinking of a you know, nice sort of Kickstarter idea, <laughs> make it happen. We'll give you a plug. Right, let's give a big shout to um, someone else that we love. This is, of course, this week's sponsor, our very good friends at ExpressVPN. Now, can we take a second just to whinge about Netflix? <laughs> because, I mean, I've spent like probably everyone has. So much time watching Netflix over the last year that we've been in lockdown here in the you UK. You know what I have to do on Netflix at the moment? I have to go into it and I have to go into the daily movies, like added every day section, just to see what's been added. Um, just because I just feel like I've watched everything that's on there. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I'm just constantly going through it. What's new? What's new? What's the new film they've added today? Well, what about this, Jeff? I told you Netflix actually hide thousands of shows and movies from you. I know just because you live here. And then they have the nerve to increase their prices recently as well. 
Um, so I know that's gone up recently. Now, what you can do is be, be a bit smart about this. Get value for your money and use ExpressVPN like we do. Now, Netflix have actually got libraries all around the world. I think on the last count, there's around 90 different Netflix libraries. So when you run out of something to watch, like you do, Joe, you fire up ExpressVPN. At the click of a button, you can then watch shows that are only available on different Netflix regions around the world. I know, Ravi, you've been spending time on uh, Netflix USA quite a lot recently. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I love ExpressVPN because it's really fast as well. There's no, like, yeah. buffering. And, uh, you know, that's the worst thing when you, you've really got a show that you want to watch and it's just trying to catch up. I think they actually like spend a bit more on their servers to make sure they've got a faster quality service. Um, I've been checking out some stuff. Uh, one thing is I can look out the window and see it. I am legend. But uh, also, you can, <laughs> you can watch... Like a reality show. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can watch that on uh, Netflix USA. Stargate as well, which is just a wicked series. Really love Stargate. And, of course, Twin Twin Peaks, you know. Uh, you, can, yeah. you can get really trippy and watch Twin Peaks. <laughs> get your retro on as well. So, I mean, there are so many different libraries around the world that you can access just at the click of a button by using ExpressVPN. Not just for Netflix as well. You know, if you live in America or Australia, you want to watch a bit of BBC iPlayer, you can do that. Usually only available in the UK. Pretend you're from the UK using ExpressVPN. It's super fast. Works from your phone, your laptop, even your smart TV as well. So you can watch these shows on your big screen without any buffering. So stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth by signing up right now at expressvpn.com slash retro. Use our link there. You'll be helping out the podcast and also get three extra months free on a one-year subscription. So that's expressvpn.com forward slash retro and of course i'll link that up in our show notes now coming up this weekend we are going to be doing our patrons hangout uh, meant to be last sunday but ravi is feeling a bit under the weather but we have rescheduled we are going to be doing that this sunday now so sunday evening 8 p.m we're going to be getting together and uh geeking out about retro stuff really that's what we do isn't it oh yeah i was gonna, I was gonna say it's mother's day so treat the mums right and then you can come and hang out with us <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people did point that out. You know, it's Mother's Day here in the UK, and Ravi was like, oh, you know, maybe we should get my mum on. <laughs> Bring your mum on, Ravi. She, she knows nothing of retro gaming. <laughs> Are you still on that bloody Nintendo? <laughs> <laughs> but if you can sneak away for a bit, um, you know, it would be great to hang out with you for a couple of hours on Sunday evening. Um, or you can just watch as well. We have a few people just look and kind of watch it as well. And, of course, it is available to our patrons. You also get access to our patrons' exclusive podcast that we do a couple of times a month the retro hour after hours plenty of other perks you get the normal show early you get it ad free but really the reason that you're backing us on patreon is to make sure that we can keep bringing you this show every single week keep bringing the guests to you as well and it all covers the running costs of the podcast so we really appreciate any support we get on patreon and of course you will get a mention in the retro hour hall of fame and let's give a massive thank you to our latest supporters thank you to robert lang chris anderton jamo mcclyan Patrick Breger and James Alston who all made donations into the running of the show we massively appreciate that guys and if you'd like to do the same you'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com a few lovely um, Apple podcast reviews I saw this week as well Ravi you sent over yeah yeah there's been about five and it's really nice actually we've hit over 300 reviews on uh, iTunes and we could do oh, with amazing. some more but that is just fantastic to have like that kind of feedback and you know we've been getting some lovely comments recently thanks so much guys 
Yeah, so that's another way you can help out the show. Helps get us in front of new people as well. So if you can uh, leave a little review on the platform you listen on, that is also hugely appreciated, providing it's a good one, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so next on the Retro Hour podcast, we're going to be uh, following up an episode that we did a couple of months ago with uh, DJ Aphrodite, um, kind of part two, talking about jungle music with someone who's making it right now using the Commodore Amiga. This guy's incredible. Pete Cannon is our guest next on the Retro Hour podcast. Jungle is massive. Wicked, wicked. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for our favourite bit of the show where we get to welcome on this week's very special guest. And recently, we have been on a bit of an Amiga jungle tip. Of course, we had the legendary DJ Aphrodite on recently. And our guest this week has caught the attention not only of the retro and the Amiga communities, but also the music scene in general, after he featured on this really popular video on that Sound on Sound magazine's YouTube channel. So to talk more about that and his amazing work that he's doing on the Amiga, let's say hello to the superstar, Pete Cannon. Hey, Pete. Hi, mate. How you doing? You all right? <laughs> Very good, thank you. Now, uh, we are going to talk about your uh, music production that you do on the Amiga, but it's, it's always interesting to kind of find out your roots and kind of go back to where it all started for you. I mean, what initially got you into, like, computers? Where did it all begin? Yeah, I must say, first, that was a solid intro. Thank you. That was <laughs> Anytime. Well, I don't know if it counts, but it was like a Nintendo, like an NES. Do you remember the original one with Mario? And Yeah. Uh, then I think, like, playing Mario, Mario 2. But I think that when they got the Amiga, I was 11 years old, and it was the Captain Planet set. Um, and I think that was the catalyst kind of thing that got me into it, really, um, a bit more than just kind of playing games, kind of getting into the demo scene, picking up various, like, discs at markets and things like that and going, oh, this computer can do other things. I uh, wonder what else it can do. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was kind of the Amiga, really. But first thing was the NES and then followed with the Amiga, yeah. I was about 11 uh, years old. And that was Dan's favourite game as well, Captain Planet. Um, well, I got the same it's... one, yeah. I got the Captain <laughs> Planet pack as well. But I remember that Bart Simpson um, animation, you know, when you put it on, you saw the spaceship come down, like watching that and being like, oh, wow. Oh, my God, yeah. Wow. Oh, Blew our mind, that did. Oh. <laughs> Did you have any like tunes that particularly caught your interest as a kid, like from video game systems or, or from the Amiga that you were just like, wow, this sounds totally different? Was it, oh, what was it? The Bitmap Brothers? Because they used to, they used, what did they do? Was it Xenon? Yeah, with Bomb, Bomb the Bass. Yeah. Yeah, Bomb the Bass. They were more, they sounded like actual tracks in the Amiga on the games. I was like, oh, how are they doing this? Like sampled pieces of 8 bit audio. Um, so I, yeah, they were kind of the main bits. And then games like Zool had crazy kind of soundtracks. It's full yeah. of samples, that one was, wasn't it, Zool? Yeah. It's like every sample you could possibly get and put it in one tune. Yeah, oh, and Zed Out, was it? Yeah, Zed Out had amazing strings. So, um, kind of like ominous, dark shootout music. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was... Uh, that was the one. Yeah, they were the ones that kind of stood out. Yeah, Bitmap Brothers and Zed out. Well, you know, being from Blackpool, did you spend a lot of time in the arcades as a kid? All the time, all the time. North Pier, what was it? Um, the, the Simpsons game, Mortal Kombat, Golden Axe. That was that was a classic. Um, and just kind of like you know hassling whoever was looking after me at the time. Like, can I have another pound for going uh, Bart Simpson again? So yeah, there was North Pier. And there was just so many arcades in Blackpool, Coral Island, 
yeah, it was good, good times. Good, good times. They're still about, aren't they? Because we went to Blackpool for Play Expo and there's uh, everyone's like, go to North Pier. And then uh, I remember seeing Coral Island as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Beautiful facade of the, on the, on the Golden Mile on the front of Blackpool. Yeah. Special place. Well, you learned piano as a kid. I mean, did that kind of help in the future? Yeah, uh, again, I've mentioned this before. My dad's a musician. Uh, he plays guitar. He's he's always says he used to leave guitars around the house, hoping maybe one day I'd pick one up. But he's, he didn't want to push it on me, but he, he, he did alternatively push on me piano lessons at the age of five. Uh, and just kind of like, you know, maybe like alternative learning methods and understanding music and reading notation just to kind of help, you know, with comprehension, I guess. So that kind of sparked an interest. And by the age of 10, it was like trying to make my own tunes on the piano. And yeah, it got me a DX7, secondhand DX7, quite cheap. And once I had that, it was, uh, it was nonstop from there, really. <laughs> like, yeah. So I, a huge, like, massively helped kind of just learning and understanding music like chords and you know harmony and just scales from an early age it kind of like being embedded in me from that age you know so yeah definitely a huge huge leg up i think um, and shout, and to, did, shout to my dad for that one and did you see that as like you know your dad being a musician were you like okay I, I can be a musician as a career or this could you know actually lead to like money oh no not at all like, it was just uh, oh, yeah, oh, did it put you off it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I had grand plans grand plans at the age of 11 no it was just like he played music so I played music and it was just something we did together and it's like I've got recordings of us um from from back in the day so yeah it's more like emulating what he's doing really yeah it kind of it changed a little bit when I went to music college at 16 when I kind of took Ah, it took it a bit more serious, you know? Well, I remember like being a teenager and, you know, before I was old enough to go out, like sitting in my room and listening to like a lot of pirate radio, you know, it was always a way to hear the good new stuff. I mean, was there much pirate radio around your way then when you were young? Well, we we used to have a Key 103, which was Stu Allen. So he'd do like a very, very slight mixes. He'd do a house one, jungle one and a hardcore one. And I I had to put like the antenna out the window to kind of make sure I could get a signal. And I would take those every week so that was kind of like getting into like you know checking out the new tunes that he was playing but there wasn't there wasn't too many there was splash fm in blackpool which was johnny fresh and a, a few other ones like dj direct and bass driver they were kind of hard to get get hold of we had all the jamaican ones so we had um heatwave which ran for 12 years and it was ba- based in a bakery and it was in an area that was a, a no-go zone for the police. So if they went in there, like everyone would just go mental. So um, they stayed on air for twelve years. Yeah, heatwave, and wow. they're now uh, community radio. But like that was a lot of ragga, a lot of jungle. But then also like they'd have rave stuff on late at night and DMB. But mostly it was like ragga <laughs> all the time. But really good. Yeah. Yeah, Stu, Stu Allen, like the Key One Hundred and Three mixes. They were amazing, man. I've still still got them all. On tape somewhere. Well, yeah, talking of tapes, um, did you kind of start collecting tape packs or like sharing these with your mates at school? And were they, were they a way of finding new music? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, in Blackpool, the, luckily there was like a few really great independent record shops. 
There's one called Melody House, one called BPM, and one called Zanzibar. So between the three of them, you could have all kind of genres covered, and that was like tapes and vinyl. So when I stumbled across these shops when I was like, you know, about 12 years old going around town, um, you'd see these tape packs. And uh, yeah, the first one I bought actually was an Origin one, which was a, a night down super south on the coast, I think Southampton or Portsmouth, somewhere around there. And once I kind of got that, it was the bug began really. And it was about just who had the best tapes at school and just swapping tapes with everybody and just taking over my dad's, you know, double deck hi-fi Iowa system and pissing him off. Why is this tape thing on again? Just like, you know, copying, just copying tapes all the time, listening on the bus, your Walkman, like the, the you know, the, the speaker down your, your blazer and listening in class. Just all the time, all the time. Yeah. And then from there, I guess it was tapes first and then it was like checking out the records in those shops as well. Did you have like a, a tape that you kind of lost and that was your ultimate kind of tape? Oh, t- one that yeah. you, you know, the, the one that got away. Sounds like you did maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lowe's. Yeah. yeah, do you know what? It was the first one. I've mentioned it before, but like as an Easy Groove tape, Obsession 1992 West Point. I think it's like November. Uh, I got a copy of it for a lad at school called Raven Reedy. Um, shout out to him and I just didn't understand what was going on I, I was like I, I didn't really understand DJ and I thought they would like the DJ would just play one big continuous record so uh, I, I had this tape and then figured out that you know they were mixing tracks together and then yeah I, I'd had this copy and I, I lost it I, I just don't I think I lent it to someone you know you never lend your tapes out but years later i figured out where it was actually from and then with like the joy of discogs i've uh, managed to buy every single record in that set <laughs> but, and recreate it and recreate it but yeah. for years it was like i don't know what this song is it was elusive tracks you know and like kind of obscure bits of techno yeah i'd say that one the easy groove tape was probably yeah, the one I- that was- can't even remember to be honest i had one that i gave to a girl to impress and then i uh, never got back <laughs> <laughs> it's always oh. for a girl revy yeah. oh, no. you, you mentioned about you know the four track that your dad had i mean how important were those little four track tape mixes you know when early started out making music you know for, for that stage in your career well uh, yeah massively like just having access to a few little bits that my dad had it was uh, an amstrad six track with a record player at the top of it it was terrible honestly it's pretty bad but you could like put the dx7 in put i had a little drum machine and then i could plug the amiga in so all these sounds were together um you know coming out of the speakers and it blew my mind if that wasn't there i mean i don't even know i don't know i mean my dad's just you know a legend for having those bits about just showing me how to use them um so i'd say it was uh very very important and in a way in a way, it's kind of similar to the trackers because you know you've got you've got four channels outputting on um, mm. on the Amiga, and it's kind of got the same kind of vibes coming from a, a little four track mixer. And I remember everybody had those back in the days, and they were all doing different things with them. Amazing how much you could fit on a on a cassette tape. Yeah, what is it? Two two tracks on each side. Yeah, you could get four tracks, couldn't you? Recording the Amiga into that, and just having the DX7 over the top, some really god awful music. But, you know, um, fun nevertheless. 
Well, how how did you end up like kind of getting your Amiga tunes? And and uh, were you into the demo and crack scene? Were you like finding stuff at the intros of games and uh, you know with those crack screens? Oh, what? Yeah, was it Skid Row? They were they were the big ones, weren't they? Like F10 yeah, yeah, for, Skid Row. F ten for Ultimate Lives. That was the one. Um, yeah, Preston Market. We used to go there, and it was like a geezer who had a huge store of discs, and I didn't really understand the demo scene or, or even know what it was. Well, I picked up this disc called a Bud Brain Mega Demo, and I just took it home, and it was like a mixture of cartoons and songs and samples, and I was like, oh, this is this isn't a game. This is kind of cool. Um, and I think you could take some of the sounds out of it and load them into Optimed. My friend had given me a copy of Optimed, uh, Duncan, and we were just kind of loading the med files in there and just kind of trying to understand like what was going on because like you know I was 13 looking at this screen going down I just didn't have a clue but luckily his brother knew a little bit about it and he'd been making some tunes on it and I think he showed us kind of the ropes to kind of get get the idea of a beat going but yeah I did have Pro Tracker as well but I think I don't know why I just like kind of stuck to Optimed because it could load in the mod files and the little bits of sounds that I had. So, yeah, we kind of stuck with that. I'm, like, understanding these things without the internet was painfully hard. Like, there's no, no like, instructions or anything. So once I was kind of in one program, I wasn't going to swap. So I kind of stuck with Optimed 4, really. And uh, were you, like, cutting up samples in there as well? Because there's that little little sample editor in inside Optimed, isn't there? Yeah. So... I remember there was a few breakbeats, and was there was it the ST? Is that the? It was a big library of Amiga samples and things like that. Um, yeah, there was yeah, like the soundtrack of discs. Soundtrack yeah. of discs. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. Um, and then you, yeah, loading little bits in, and then just wondering how I could make my own sounds in it. And that was when we figured out you could get a little cartridge for it. It went in the back of the uh, Amiga, which again blew my head off. Um, so I was uh, traipsing around markets and car boot sales looking for one of those. And luckily, one turned up for a fiver. We we put it in and we had Techno Turbo Sound or Techno Sound Turbo, I can't remember what it's called. And you press press record and the screen goes blank. And we were like, what's happening? We've got like a record recording and it stopped. And then we pressed the keys and it, and it you know, played the sound. And me and my mate, I think, pretty much hugged each other like, oh my God, we've got a sound. What's this? And... From there, well, I mean, it's been been like trying to get the same high. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and you can feel like ten seconds into RAM or something before it filled up. Oh yeah, less than that. Maybe yeah, about seven seconds or something. Crazy. And you could do all like flanging effects on that um, techno sounds turbo software. I remember you could like you know speed it up and uh, slow it down. It had like a real uh, selection of cheesy effects on on top of everything. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you could actually apply them to the sound you'd recorded. You could do like a bit of delay and a fade out. But if you were auditioning sounds through it, it had a huge selection of like flanges, phases. Uh, And I've been using it recently, actually, just running sounds through that and then straight back into the Mac. And it just gives it that instant Amiga Paula chip shine, Um, something I couldn't really do back in the day. So, yeah. It, yeah, it had some interesting effects. But I think the best one for recording was the Audio Master 4. Yeah, that, that when we got that, 
like you can actually time stretch on it. And that was another thing that was like, oh, wow, what's going on? It's like, oh, got all Did- a bit mathsy and like, oh, if I double the time here, but change the pitch, can can make it sound like that Terminator track or whatever, where the drums go up. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, those two programs, insane. Did you kind of get on any later versions of Optimed? Because I know that it got into like Optimed Sound Studio and you could add extra channels and like double double the amount um, of channels that you had. I think it went up to eight. Yeah. I mean, you could do eight on Optimed 4. You just had to, I think that two two samples would then share one output. Um, so you had to adjust the levels to 32, but it sounded awful. So people used to use two together, didn't they? Like Aphrodite with the space bar or, you know, you, I think you can MIDI it up. But I did get later versions of Optimed. And again, I don't know, you know, I was only like 13, 14. I was like, this looks a bit different. I haven't really got time to learn this. I'm just going to keep with what I know. <laughs> like, again, no internet. I can't. I, I was too excited making music to, to kind of like learn the new ones. But yeah, at Optimed 5, which was pretty similar. And then the Sound Studio, I think was, yeah, that was a bit snazzy, wasn't it? You could like get those uh, 14-bit, is it Takata cards? Like for your Amiga 4000? I've been, uh, yeah, on yeah. The, been on the lookout for one of those. If anyone's got one, shout me, please. <laughs> um. <laughs> and, and I remember you could also, yeah, you could extend it, but also you had to like reduce the tempo by half. Ah, uh, when, yeah, when that you- was it when you did extend it so like that it would all just sound funny <laughs> mm, all all interesting learning curves indeed i mean obviously that was going on on the amiga but the atari st was also a massive computer in music production um and obviously cubase started on the st i mean did you have much experience with that back then then we were, were you using cubase on the st as well no not at that age i i mean that was my friend had an atari st and we knew that it had midi like direct on it which i thought was cool but I didn't. I didn't actually know what Cubase was. Um, no one. I didn't know anyone with a copy, or no one showed me about it. And I figured it out later on when I went to music college. And by that point, it was like '98, and everyone was using early Macs and PCs with like a copy of 3.6 Cubase. So yeah. I kind of learned Cubase then, coming off coming off Octomed, going from Octomed. Um, and then, yeah, Cubase was the one for me for years. So kind of I went reversed way round, got an Atari ST because I used to have Cubase on a PC. So I then knew how to use it. It just was basically a grey version. But, oh, man, it's so solid, honestly. The ST I've got is 4 meg maxed out. It's not crashed once in four years. It's insane. So good. It's I use the Amiga because of the Paula's sound chip and, the you know, the sampling capabilities of it. It sounds really raggo and rough like early rave music cube cubase didn't have on the st before the falcon you couldn't you know it was just running midi so you'd have to have a sampler that's all the atari was a sequencer wasn't it and like the amiga could do sound um so a huge difference because you'd probably have like a an akai or an emu hooked up to your atari and a little mixing desk whereas the Amiga could just do 8-bit just left and right out into, like, you know, your stereo. So, yeah, probably I think the amalgamation of, like, a sampler and Octomed is, like, the dream setup because you've got, like, four little channels. Sorry, four channels of 8-bit audio, and then, you know, you can have the 
950 running on the external channels. So, yeah, kind of a big difference. And then when the Atari Falcon came out, you could actually do hard disk recording. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. DSP as well in it, didn't it? Yeah. That, and then I think, yeah, that is where that took over massively. I'd love one of those as well. They're really expensive these days, aren't they? Yeah, I think um, I think the last one I saw on eBay went for, went for about 1500 quid, I think. Oh, Jesus. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, well, you know, obviously you're doing this stuff on your Amiga in your bedroom as a teenager. I mean, when did it get to the stage when people were taking notice of your music and how did you get it out there at that stage? Well, um, well I, I went to music college at 16, so learning kind of how to maybe make music a bit, you know, a bit more properly, shall we say, using mixing desks and learning how to mix tracks down and master things. Then went to Music University at Leeds College of Music. And I think, you know, just honing the skills for like six years doing all of that kind of helped. And then making early hip-hop music with this kind of first little bits I put out, really. Um, yeah. Meeting, meeting what- people along the way at university and college, making music together. Until eventually, say, you know, mid-20s, having a few records out on High Focus, which is a UK hip-hop label, um, with people like Baxter, Day Dyke, uh, Flip Tricks. I think maybe that was like, you know, first time to getting stuff out properly, I think. You know. Was there any kind of resistance from tutors and lecturers about you using the older equipment? And were they saying, get onto this new stuff? I think the lecturers, they used to listen to some of the things that I'd done. They were more impressed that I was like making tracks with an Amiga still like it's because it's all out at home but all i wanted to do was get a pc and get a a little sound module and have a setup similar to they had at college so they kind of just listened to what i did but i know i was more just pushing wanting to get a pc really and kind of develop my sound and get because at that point having an amiga was eh, you know because you were trying to keep up with everything i think like rose tinted glass and looking back at it now and maybe having a better skill set and being able to tidy it up and EQ it and compress it. You know, you can I can kind of work with it a bit more. But back then it was kind of a raw sound. Um, yeah. Which is interesting. So today a lot of musicians are trying to kind of capture that sound again. And, you know, having the real hardware, mm. I imagine, is a lot easier than trying to do it with modern stuff and trying to get that grit that the Amiga sound chip had. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Amiga's out on its own. It's just... Like it's 8 bit, isn't it? So you've got the 950, which is 12 bit, which is like synonymous with early jungle, really round sound, massive filter on it. Um, but you know, you can you can do it inside the box. There's you know, there's there's plugins that you can use. There's the Akizer, it's a very famous plugin that emulates um time stretching inside the computer. I guess it's just up to like whatever you want to do. I just, I just. I just like the process of going going through a slower process. It slows me down. You know, it makes me think a little bit more about what I'm doing. Each to their own, really. You know, I, I think I like the process of using the old equipment, but it does sound great. Like you're working alongside uh, trackers at the moment with some tunes, aren't you? So you kind of got mm. Ableton doing a little bit and then trackers. Do you find like the combination of the technologies works really well? Yeah, I think that's that's part of it, isn't it? I mean, everything from the Amiga goes into the Mac at some point. It needs to be maybe EQ'd or just compressed and grouped. A little bit, of, a touch of mastering, nothing too crazy. Kind of like, I always say, like a glorified tape machine. But 
if you do want to stem it out as well, I mean, I was just doing that today with a new track. Just It's good starting an idea in the Amiga, getting like, you know, maybe 16 bars going and you've got the raw sound and then just adapting that into uh, into the Mac. Going from there, it's just, it's little stages of letting the song grow instead of just going, I've thrown a thousand samples into Ableton and I'm already bored and lost. So th- I think the combination of it all is, is the winning formula for me anyway and a few outboard synths and stuff to play with, stuff to stuff to have fun with, you know? Well, what kind of like mastering and processing do you do on the Amiga stuff? I mean, do you do anything to kind of clean up that sound then or do you keep it raw? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've, <laughs> you've got to do a lot. So it goes out of the Amiga into a little pedal which has a compressor in it, just a touch, like just to knock knock the dynamics, dynamics down a little bit. Then it goes into my desk. It's EQ'd from there and that goes into Ableton. And then, you know, you group the drums, EQ and compress and then separate the bass, and then they'll go to the master. Uh, I have like a master chain, but sometimes, you know, for ease, you might use something like Isotope Ozone, which is a master in software. And you can just put on your master and kind of like just get a basic a basic feel um, for kind of like, you know, something you could maybe play out or just play on the radio. Um, so, yeah, it's a whole process to kind of, you have to give the Amiga life. It's it can sound a bit dull, coming just straight out of it. You know, I don't know if you've found that like making tunes or just like you know getting sound out of it. What do you reckon? You know, I found um, I, I was using it on big sound systems, and I was like, this is sounding rubbish. And then someone's like, oh, you know, there's a high pass filter in there that you can turn off. And then I turned that off, and I was like, oh my god, this sounds like a synthesizer or something. It looked like the levels went crazy. It was great. Yeah, man, definitely. I mean, do you have any like kind of hidden hidden tips and tricks like that that uh, you kind of use to to help the sound? The, uh, I think you you do need to EQ it off the desk, like giving it a little extra bass. But then I'll say when you do get quite a lot of noise out of the Amiga, so it's always sensible to EQ that out when you get it into your Mac. You might do a roll off on certain things just to keep it tidy because as you say if you start playing things in clubs it's got all the raw sound on it it'll sound uh really rough but then again there's a bit of a charm you don't want to lose too much of it you know like yeah yeah like i i've played live and people uh you know they love hearing that kind of up and down sound because they haven't heard that since the 90s and that kind of yeah. not non you know everything comes out at mid at the moment um uh when you're doing something and this is just like whoa you know, all over the place. It's like, I wonder what Aphrodite was doing with, you know, like, Some Justice, that track. I don't know, like, how was that mastered? How was it EQ'd? What did they do to it? Because, you know, that you can tell it's an Amiga, but it's still, it's, it's, it's there, isn't it? It sounds great. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's so clean, yeah. Well, you recently got interviewed by um, industry magazine Sound on Sound um, that I mentioned before, that video that, you know, I've been seeing that shared in all the Amiga groups over the last six months or so. Are you noticing kind of more mainstream press are getting interested in, like, you know, doing things on machines like the Amiga and, you know, things that are a little bit different? Yeah, I mean, off the back of that video alone, like, Dizzy Rascal contacted me, <laughs> which was, like, was well. Wow. Just on the bus, like, oh, just on Instagram, it's like Dizzy Raspel dropping in the DMs. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> and then, like, a guy called, well, Duke DeMont as well. He's that big house producer. Yeah. You know, he's contacted me off the back of that video. I think people are just watching it and it's something a bit different, isn't it? And it adds to a sound. So, yeah, 
I think there's like a lot. I know there's a lot of people who message me like, how do you set up an Amiga? I'm going to buy one. I get like one of those messages every other day, I reckon. So uh, people are watching and listening and like, there's a good community, isn't there? There's like, you know, Amiga Junglism. There's a uh, Mikey, Spicy Mikey, Phineas 2, Kid Libs using, you know, the Amiga as well now. And yeah, in fact, Aphex Twin played Kid Lib track and one of my tracks made on an Amiga in one of his sets before before lockdown which was kind of bonkers so yeah i reckon there's there's still interest there isn't there yeah i think it's crazy the level of interest like we we have a guy aaron wright that was producing a a tune and he did a conversion of shaggy's and then shaggy's assistant showed him it on optimed and i think it's like (laughs) the the kind of look of of optimed it looks like you're you're trapped inside the matrix or something. So like when people see that, they're like, wow, you know, cause it's so alien to anyone using a, a, a door or a, mm. a sequencer. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's a kickback to kind of getting a bit bored of just the digital or just, you know, internet overload in life in general. I don't know, you know, just like, just a bit of nostalgia, you know, then especially for, guys like us i reckon you know what i mean it's just that nostalgia is oh, it's just it's just amazing I, it's one of the reasons why i got it back out really um originally but yeah huge scene at the minute so many facebook pages and they you know people showing off their amigas and their recapped and repainted amigas and whatever so it's all it's all interesting i love it it is good. And I wonder if the the pandemic kind of helped with that. Because I mean, that, I was that, reading, you know. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. yeah. That's what I was kind of getting at as well. You know, people just, what am I going to do? Sit in, oh, get the Amiga back out. Why not? Let's escape to a happier time. Yeah, yeah maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Well, you recently brought out um, an Amiga themed album with a free sample disc in there as well. I mean, <laughs> tell tell us a bit about that then. And do you think you know a lot of people have kind of sparked their memories for the Amiga? Checking that out. Ah, uh, yeah, I reckon. I mean, that was definitely like the best selling one by a mile it was um, a homage so we say to the amiga format cover and you know uh, ask your news agent where the floppy disk is so i was like i've just got to do a floppy disk haven't i so i did a limited edition like with like 100 floppy disks as well yeah people loved that one man and then i seen people like you know loading up optimed and using the samples that i'd given them and just remaking stuff again yeah and that's on n4 records I've I've got a, a couple more coming like that as well real soon. So it's uh, it's quite a task making like full songs on it. But yeah, I think yeah, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. So next next few releases, some more Amiga stuff coming, I think. And uh, we've got to give a shout out to the uh, the new magazine as well, haven't we? Oh the yeah, Amiga, for sure. Amiga yeah, Addict. Yeah. Yeah, we've got to have an Amiga Addict-based um, uh, album as well. Oh out. man, I'd love that to. That would be awesome. Yeah. Love if if uh, a current Amiga magazine rather than one of these old old one past magazines, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what would be? Um, obviously, there's lots of people I, I imagine that you look up to, and um, anyone that would be your kind of dream collaboration, either whether it's in the scene or just in general. I mean, you've got to say Busy B every time. Busy B is just the Don, the Amiga, like one of the Amiga Dons, isn't he? Original Jungle dude, like Brain Records, and like. That tune, Obsessions, came out, and that was like on one of those early tapes I heard. It just blew my head off. And he's still going now. He does like aiming therapy 
on his YouTube page and, you know, he's showcasing the Amiga and his 950 and all his other Akai bits and stuff. Um, yeah, he just made, he was just prolific. He made so much stuff. Um, who else? Like, obviously, Aphrodite. Like, a reggae beat boy, yeah, that tune. Like, drums everywhere. And, like, you see he was, like, a master of, like, the hexadecimal coding, um, you know, all the the portamento bends and fades and delays. You can even do like a manual time stretch in there with the code. So yeah, busy B Aphrodite. Red Alert and Mike Slammer, they used to use Amiga. Um but I think at the moment, I mean I'd like I, I wanted to do a track with Mikey. I don't know if you know Mike um Finish too. Spicy Mikey. Spicy yeah, I've, Mikey. yeah, yeah, I've heard of Spicy Mikey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um so I mean yeah, we we've talked about it on and off like online but like mikey get at me let's make some let's make some music well another thing that's kind of got everybody's attention and it's a really cool piece of hardware as well which is uh the poly end tracker and i noticed you did a little kind of well it wasn't a tutorial but you just kind of just showed how to slice up some beats and stuff have you had a lot of interest with uh, uh people uh kind of contacting you about the tracker and uh what do you think of the hardware yeah, the, I mean, the reason I even got it is because I'd never heard of it, and people just kept tagging me and Polyend in on Twitter, going, "You need to give Pete one of these." I was like, "What is this?" And then I saw it, I was like, "Ah, oh, looks really interesting." And then those kind of tweets continued, and then they just messaged me, he's like, "Do you want to have a? Do you want a demo version of one of these? We'll send it to you in the post." I was like, "That looks amazing. I'd love to." Yeah, it's incredible. Really slick bit of kit, and. You know, you can load your samples SD card straight into the back and it just runs like Optimed. But it's got eight channels. You can chop your beats. It's got effects in it. It's, I mean, if you know how to use a tracker, you can just go straight from the Amiga to the Poly and done. It's it's pretty much the same. Like I, I called it in the video, like an Amiga in the box. Um, yeah, and I think I think they're about 400, 500 euros. It's, if you're into trackers and you, you want to like, have it on the go, and maybe Amiga might be a bit much of a setup for you. I would definitely recommend Polyend. We're going to be working on some new things together as well. Don't uh, don't want to say too much, but yeah, we're, we're going to be doing something, something coming, something, something coming soon. Yeah. Have you tried the live performance uh, mode on it as well? Because I know it's um, re- like you said, it's really portable, and you can even charge it off like a little battery pack, which yeah. I think is just insane so you can take that out and do like live stuff on it that that yeah because the the live mode you know you kind of do your filters or your triplets and there's just so many effects on it and you can just drop those in just flick of a button and yeah charge it off a portable battery i think the one i've got like does does my phone it'll charge it for like the whole day so you know if you're on the bus or you know you're going shopping Maybe make some beats, whatever, on the go. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously with um, the way the world's been in the last year with the pandemic, I mean, you know, live performances have been out the window. I mean, have you been doing anything online, any streaming or any plans to? Uh, kind of a duality. Like I, I like I like some of it, but then it's like, oh, it just feels a bit uh, like... I did one for Boomtown, which was like a live me in my room just you know, like the kind of videos I do, just an amalgamation of those and some new ones. And I put together like an hour's worth of original tracks. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's just sad, isn't it? I just want to get out and play and kind of maybe, you know, get a live set 
properly go in and take that on the road, that would be that would be the dream. But even just a bit of DJing. So yeah, I've not done too much streaming, no, not really. What do you what do you reckon on it? Have you been watching a lot or? Yeah, we we're, we're both kind of DJing ourselves, so um, uh, we've been both streaming on a Mixcloud, which seems yeah. to have quite a nice little little following, and uh, you know, there's a lot of people dedicated to just kind of DJing on there. But yeah, it it, it it's not as satisfying as going out and playing, is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got a radio show starting on Ballamy, so I think that's like my until we can go back out that's going to be my little fix for doing djing uh once a month on there so like at the end of every month i'll be playing on ballamy radio yeah do you think after covid uh we'll, we'll all get together and have a huge amiga jungle rave i bloody hope so <laughs> <laughs> where can we do it where's in between nottingham and london yeah we'll just meet we'll, we'll just find a field <laughs> find a field big generator get your poly trackers <laughs> turn the bass up for the rumbly amiga be fine no, it would be it would be great, wouldn't it? Well, Pete, it's been incredible getting you know not only your history with the Amiga, but the fact that you know you're still using it today, and that long may it continue. What's coming up in the future? Then what what you're kind of working on right now? What, what can we expect? Um, two albums that I've done completely produced on the Amiga, um, but it's some hip hop stuff. Um, they'll be coming out later this year. I'm really looking forward to getting those out. I've also got an album of the jungle kind of stuff I've been making. Um, which is part Amiga, part Polytracker, part ST. And I've just been working on like several adverts and stuff for TV, which is kind of ongoing work that I have to do to, well, have to do that I do to fund the uh, the passion projects, which is the Amiga. Yeah, maybe maybe another label coming. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Pete, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on, mate, and uh, sharing your stories with us. It's been nice to talk to you. Nice one, guys. Big up. Thank you. Yeah.